you know, we all need food, whether it's recession, whether it's COVID, whether it's 2008 financial crisis, people need to eat. And so during those periods, farming has actually done tremendously well. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today I'm joined by Artem Milinchok, who is the founder and CEO of Farm Together. And today we are continuing our journey into the world of alternative investment. So first off, Artem, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm excited for you to be here. Thank you, Nilsi. I'm excited to, to talk with you. Absolutely. Now, what's really exciting for me about our conversation is that it's a new asset class for me, and I think for many of our listeners as well. But I have a feeling that once we get into the conversation, it'll be surprising to most of us how similarly you can think about investing in farmland compared to more traditional assets and the compelling arguments, of course, for doing so. So I want to kick off by framing what we're going to talk together about uh, really today, and that is by better understanding your journey into the world of investing in the first place, and also specifically, of course, how you came about choosing farmland as, as your focus area. So take us back to where it all began and what inspired you along the way to to get to where you are today. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I like to say I was born in Soviet Union, raised in Russia, and it's it's really been a crazy crazy to see how you know Russia in the end of the 20th century transitioned from you know Soviet Union to sort of the the 90s, which was this wild wild west. So now kind of more this. Uh, I know still Russia seems like exciting from outside, but really it's this very sort of. Uh, boring kind of middle class uh, aspirations and and you know getting more and more boring by every year despite sometimes you know the, the occasional flares up sure. um, and I think for me you know the journey into finance and ag was really in a lot of ways um, kind of influenced by that transition I lived through as a kid you know the sort of the older quote unquote <laughs> viewers will remember that uh, you know in Soviet Union we there was really so little food and I like to say that. You know, the West won the Cold War, not through nukes, but through full shelves. Right. Because that's what everyone going back, you know, from the West to Russia would say like, oh my God, you know, I went to, to Berlin, I went to Switzerland, I went to London, they had so much food in the right. stores. <laughs> and that's really true. You know, I remember uh, with um, with kind of my grandparents, everyone would get this little plot of subsistence land in Soviet Union. And whether you were, you know, an academic or you lived in a small town in the summer, you'd go there and plant it. And that's because otherwise you would be screwed because there wasn't right. that much food. And so I worked with, uh, you know, with my grandparents, like oh, potato, potato farm and chickens and all that stuff. So, you know, spending a lot of time doing what now would be called organic agriculture. But really it was picking bugs and kind of manually managing plants because we didn't have money for fertilizer or pesticides <laughs> so that was my early foray into organic culture really transcending there but i think you know what what kind of stuck with me in sort of that period is two things like one is is just uh no matter what happens food and land is kind of the immovable constants in our lives it's really something that everyone needs on a daily basis and i think it's just really nice to be building your life your career and your investment portfolio that will get to on something that is tangible real and will always have intrinsic value and the second part of you know why i even went into finance was also the same kind of reason seeing how good financial economic systems can create Prosperity, you know, right now, I mean, objectively, people in Russia look way better than in Soviet Union, just miles and miles better. And, you know, what changed? I mean, 
the the natural resources didn't change right if anything science now is worse than it used to be before and it's the economic system it's all in in the minds right uh, i think we've now know that it's not about resources it's about the the mindset and mentality of the people and the systems incentives you put in place and so it was just like fascinating to me and so i love finance i got my bachelor's and master's and then mba in finance and economics and um, you know spent uh, so i moved to canada in 2007 and then now to san francisco in 2016 where you know san francisco new york based us based but most of my professional life has been in in finance uh, i worked for a number of years in pricewaterhouse and ernst and young and then in canada it was mostly for a canadian pension fund called ontario teachers which it's actually, it's almost a $200 billion pension fund. Now it's a behemoth. It really is huge. And, you know, coming back to kind of economic systems, all that wealth serves around three, 400,000 teachers, only teachers, only in the province of Ontario in Canada. <laughs> uh, so teachers do very well when they retire in Canada, very well. It's quite interesting. They were actually one of my very early clients. They became a client in, in my uh, industry, um, you know, back in, in the um, you know early 2000s. So they were also trendsetters to some extent in that area. Not to spoil Absolutely. your story. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, Thank you for telling it for me because you know, I'm glad you said it. Uh, I'm really proud of having worked at Ontario Teachers because they are trendsetters, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but they were early trendsetters in infrastructure as an mm. asset class back in 2006-10 when infrastructure had maybe 50 to 70 billion under management. Now they're starting to trendset uh, in farmland where they've created internal groups to invest in that asset space where farmland right now is only about 50 billion in global assets under management. Uh, and so, you know, my my story here is partially that teachers will now open up another asset class for people because now infrastructure is 600 billion. Right. Uh, but anyway, yeah, not to, not to jump ahead. Sure. So I worked for a number of years in Ontario Teachers with a lot of uh, my work uh, touching food, agriculture, farmland. I worked for a private equity fund investing in farmland kind of more uh, involved, smaller fashion. And I worked for a family office where also we invested in innovative food products in um, sort of the, the food space. And then before starting Farm Together in 2018, sort of my last foray into the employment world <laughs> before striking my own, um, I was actually the uh, CFO and VP of operations at a company called Food Harvest, which is a very interesting B2B marketplace for ugly fruits and vegetables. So that get thrown out at farm level and full harvest, what we do is buy them from farms and then sell them to, let's say, juice companies where they don't care what the fruit looks like. They just need to process it. And, you know, it's tremendous because food waste is actually such a huge issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, coming back to the value of economic systems and incentives, there was a clear opportunity to do, you know, good for the world, good for the farms, good for the consumers because you lower the price and also make money. And so, you know, that last experience really gave me great hands-on entrepreneurial mindset. And the founder there was phenomenal and just being this, you know, relentless executor. I mean, she was just fearless, completely, you know, unfazed in in the face of any any danger. And it really inspired me to like, adopt that mindset so <laughs> and that's a great mindset and a great skill to have especially when you're building some something new from scratch because there's always going to be the you know the challenge that you didn't think about coming your way it's also you know surprising how clear it can be in your head and clear from first principles that this is you know already exists in your head it's already functional and you just like sometimes get baffled why people can't catch up and then you have to be patient and educate and prove, you know, even full harvest right now. I mean, sounds like the simplest idea, right? Here is an apple that is slightly deformed. It's still a great apple. I mean, nature naturally doesn't work that way, but it will never make it to the shelves of, you know, Whole Foods, Safeway, whatever retailers you guys have in, in Switzerland. <laughs> and then you just take it and, you know, you, you sell it to processor. Yeah, but even even today, there's still people who are like, "Wow, how innovative!" And you know, we we face the same with farmland. Uh, and look, I I don't blame anyone, but uh, for example, you know, people say, "Oh, this is such a new and exotic idea." 
Like this is kind of the oldest asset class. Right. I mean, this is how a civilization started. Like everything else you have is a novel new idea. This yeah. is like a very old idea. Yeah. So uh, indeed, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is it is fascinating how these things are perceived differently for for various people. Now we're obviously going to go into the weeds of investing in farmland, but I want to explore the asset class itself uh, a bit beforehand. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the history. Uh, of farmland as an asset class, maybe how it's grown over the years and perhaps why it seems to be becoming more popular with investors these days. Absolutely. So, you know, what's interesting about farmland, and we, we're just going to talk farmland in the United States, sure. um, and let's just set some kind of uh, some stakes. This is a $2.5 trillion, so with a T, asset class. That's the value of just land. When we say farmland, It's also important to note, we don't talk about really like processing capacities, meatpacking houses. It really is mostly land with sometimes a little bit of improvements on it, but investing in the soil. And then in the United States, you have about 600 billion, which would be uh, pasture land. So this is where you would you know, graze your, your cows. And we don't typically touch that. And then the rest, 1.9 trillion or so, is uh, harvested crop land. So this will be everything else. It's your corn your soybeans all your you know your almonds your fruits you name it and when we say investing in farmland what we mean is that you get a claim to the movement in the asset price so if the you know land prices go up you benefit go down you you suffer and uh, income from farmland and income is generated typically through rental model to farmers where you Act essentially as a landlord, and it's a very common practice. Actually, 40% of farmland today is rented. Now, talking about history, for the longest time, and why it's kind of only happening now, but farmland would typically get passed on from parents to children, children to grandchildren, and they would continue farming it. And sometimes it would be you know smaller plots of land that you would rent out maybe to neighboring farm, and you would do it for generations. Uh, sometimes you would come in for the summer, you know, you hire a few farm hands, they kind of help you plant it. And it was sort of this, not quite a hobby, but not really a professional thing that you would do. You know, you would have another job. Sometimes like your family would uh, sort of come in different times. So it was like this kind of semi-artisanal uh, endeavor. And what has happened in the last, you know, 40 years or so, and especially the trend today is that now as, you know, everything is moving to cities, urbanization, everyone wants to live in cities, kids don't want to be farmers. Uh, and at the same time, average age of farming in the U.S. is approaching 60. And what that leads to is that as farmers retire, kids don't want to farm. And that leads to huge amounts of farmland coming to the market, outside market, uh, outside investors, non-farmers for the very first time. And we are talking a tectonic numbers. This is 70% of farmland, which is 1.5 trillion plus, is going to change hands in the next 20 years. So we're talking something like a yeah, like 100 billion to change hands yeah, in the next uh, every year. And so the history of the asset class has been that it wasn't that accessible before because just there wasn't enough volume going to outside investors. And then initially, some insurance companies, some banks that happened to come into farmland possession uh, would start you know, investment funds. And the early players in the space that have now formed the, the Encry Farmland Index, institutionalized the market, really brought a lot of very professional aspects to measuring and auditing and investing in the asset class are the following players. You have UBS, Hancock, you have Prudential which is a huge insurance company, uh, Nuveen, which is a trillion dollar asset manager, uh, MetLife, and then you have the pension funds now. You have now about 100 private funds, which are kind of smaller. You know, we're talking like 30, 50, 100, 200 million, maybe half a billion, but nothing close to, you know, behemoths in real estate and infrastructure. Sure. And then you have a couple public stocks, two only actually, that uh, you can invest into to have exposure to farmland. And so, you know, that's sort of the, the history has been that we went from about in 91, uh, maybe like a few hundred million in sort of formalized assets under management, now 50 billion globally. The increase uh, farmland index, which is kind of the U.S. institutional index, is now about 
11 billion or so under management and we're seeing every almost month i mean sometimes it's like every week announcements about this player has raised a new fund this pension fund has you know acquired a property this fund is looking to deploy farmland uh, capital into farmland so um a lot of new players coming in, uh, the Canadian pension funds being some of them. Surprisingly, actually, a lot of my friends that I worked with at teachers now or elsewhere, but like now uh, principals in farmland investing groups in Canada. So something about my career. First of all, just, just something for me, since I don't know much about farming. But to me, for example, if you have like a I think it's, you call it a, a permanent crop, right? So like apple trees or whatever it might be. I mean, is that even a full-time job? I mean, you said, as you said, they had a second job or something like mm -hmm. that. But I mean, some I, I imagine that some farms are very seasonal in terms of the workload. or And is that one of the reasons why people haven't really taken it as a, as you say, a professional type business? Yeah, that, that's part of it. Part of it is uh, sometimes, so there's still a ton of farmers that do it professionally. And the one, all the ones we work with, they are multi-generational, you know, almost professional farming businesses. But, you know, it's been it's it's been a mixture of, yeah, sometimes it's seasonal, there's more work to do in the, you know, let's say the summer, the harvest versus the winter. Some of it is if you want to do kind of farming year round, then you have to have different crops that have different uh, cycles. So you can stay busy the whole year, which, you know, requires you more to have more capabilities, more capital, uh, which is, is harder to do. Yeah, part of it, sometimes it's it's purely emotional, which is some we, we, you know, we help with that as well. How do you maintain ownership of a family farm that has been in your family for generations? It's actually uh, a big issue because oftentimes what happens is that you have for some reason, it's always three siblings in the farming right. families. <laughs> Two don't want to farm. One wants to farm. How do you cash them out? And how do you keep the farm and the family? That's, for example, something that we actually look to help with. And and so you sometimes you get lots being sliced up where there'll be conflict within family. And so they'll have this lot, that lot. I think it just honestly comes back to how even U.S. was sort of settled, how it developed a lot of it was, for example, we have something called the Homestead Act, where you show up and you would get, you know, a parcel of land and you keep moving west, you know, the last frontier, the west frontier, and move, move, and you get a piece of land. And it, it's very fragmented, whereas, uh, for example, you go look at places like, you know, Russia or Brazil, uh, it's sometimes much more industrial. And so there's also this uh, fragmentation issue in economies of scale that make it harder sometimes for farmers to to do it you know at that sort of large professional scale yeah sure now i want to take you back to what we were discussing just uh, uh, a second ago and that is this thing about you know the motivation for these investors now to be looking so seriously uh, mm -hmm. at farmland and of course on one side you could say well a lot of investments are becoming uh, more interesting given the environment we're in right now with yep. no yields, uh, so to speak, worldwide. But also, I think the sophistication of um, many investors in terms of understanding the power of non-correlation, et cetera, et cetera. So talk to me from from the inside, and obviously you having done it also from the institutional side, what, what do you think is the main driver now to, for these investors to move into farmland? Yeah, it's, um, Manuel, you actually touched on some of the main ones, but I'll just run you and your listeners through it. It's just a little bit of history. Farmland actually has performed tremendously well in the last 30 years. From okay. uh, 91 to 2018, the returns have been 10.5%, which is actually higher than uh, most other asset classes. And it's kind of, uh, you know, comparing farmland to you know, U.S. equities, international equities, global fixed income, it's really done quite well. And so returns are actually part of it. Uh, it's also definitely a low volatility uh, investment. If we look at farmland returns uh, from 1970 to 2018, which is kind of the, the longest period we have, the volatility has only been 7%, which compared to like U.S. equities, international equities, infrastructure even, it's, it's much higher than that. I mean, U.S. equity has been like 17%, national equity is 20%. So it is, the part of it is the, the uh, desire to um, achieve attractive risk-adjusted returns. And right. on those numbers, they broadly hold, you know, whatever you look period. I mean, if you look in the last 10 years, Farmland has done 11%, slightly outperformed by stocks at almost 12% and kind of in line with real estate. But, uh, you know, that's been a big driver of interest. I would say 
the non-correlation has been huge as well. Uh, when you look at professional investors and really uh, when you look at how I think, in my view, individuals should construct their portfolios when they're trying to meet financial financial goals. Diversification is the name of the game because you're able to achieve better returns with low volatility, uh, with less risk, and also, honestly, a less risk of losing principal. Uh, that's really important. You know, risk isn't just how volatile it is, but can you actually lose money and how much money? So I think that's really important. And farmland is, is phenomenal in that regard because of its unique kind of underlying nature you know we all need food whether it's recession whether it's COVID, whether it's 2008 financial crisis people need to eat and so during those periods farming has actually done tremendously well i mean in this period it's been it's been flat versus you know, real estate for example fell through travel in the 2008-9 crisis farming was actually up almost 20 percent 20 percent plus from Q4 2007, Q4 2009. When we look at the correlation of farmland to other asset classes, it's negative to zero to the highest correlation from 91, 2019 would be to real estate, which 0.4, so somewhat correlated. But my view on this is that once we look at the 2020 numbers, we'll see that correlation decouple completely or come down significantly because as you can imagine right now, due to COVID, what was considered safe Triple A cannot go down. New York right. apartments, New York office, San Francisco sure. has just collapsed. I mean, I tell you firsthand, San Francisco rental rates for studios have fallen by 30%. Wow. That is just incredible number. And so yeah, the non-correlation part is important. The way the like pension funds right now, any sort of really professional portfolio manager, once they sold, the way they do it right now is they, they couldn't care less about individual stock, individual risks, or even asset class risks. What they look at is adding this particular investment. What does it do to my total portfolio? And Farmland is tons of academic research in that improves tremendously your, your sharp ratio, your risk to return, uh, return to risk ratio. And, and that's honestly for the institutional players been a huge attractiveness. And then lastly, I think in the last six months, what we have seen personally with our clients, and these clients include high net worth individuals, family offices, investment advisors, deep desire to have a portion of portfolio at least that is inflation protected. Mm. There's a segment of the market that is really worried about this money printing. They worry about runaway inflation. And Farman has done better in inflation than anything else except maybe gold. Sorry, better than gold even, yes. Mm. Mm. Actually better than gold. And that makes a lot of sense because inflation is composed really of in a lot of ways of the sort of the farmland products, you know, food, feed, fiber, fuel, as we call it. A lot of that goes into inflation. So people want to have real assets that over a course of several decades or 10 years will preserve and grow their value. I was listening to a couple of uh, podcasts in the last couple of weeks, and I think it was, you know, Dr. Pippa Malmgren and also uh, Dr. Mark Faber or Faber, who talked about how, especially, you know, high net worth individuals, but even maybe the ultra high net worth individuals, have really maybe in the last couple of years started to add you know, hard assets like land and farmland to their portfolios. And of course, all the things you mentioned just now is, is obviously very good reasons. Now, one thing I have learned from my 30 plus years in, 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 in this industry is that investors like to look at long pieces of data in order to make any decisions. Mm -hmm. So how far back can you go in terms of reliable data for farmland as an asset class and how... How frequent is this data, quote unquote, updated, if I can even use that word? Yeah, absolutely. You can go back to 1991. That's when the institutional index started. And even if you look at the last 20 years, there's tons of good data. There's actually not just the industry kind of investment uh, manager's data. You also have very sophisticated, very detailed information from USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which, I mean, they have phenomenal sets of data. So you can go back, you can triangulate against different data sets, different metrics to verify the the, the returns and the performance of farmland. So all that is, is fairly available. And I think that's partially what I love about farmland. I mean, 
at the end of the day, you're really looking at soil and its yield potential. And what it means is that you can also do a discounted cash flow analysis and just take a look at, okay, if I buy this field today, this is the price of, let's say, almonds. This is how much it costs to grow them. What are my forecasted returns? And so you don't need to necessarily just look at history. You don't need to necessarily look at comparable uh, pricing. You can take a look at, like, what am I projected to return? And is this reasonable? Are people going to continue eating almonds? Are people going to continue eating, I don't know, food, <laughs> corn? Are there trends in organic food? Are they, is it going to be a long-term demand? Is it going up, which it is, and it's insatiable. Um, what does it mean for my value of land? So, in in our underwriting as well, we and I hear you completely. You know, we are institutional uh, investors within Farm Together. We all come from institutional backgrounds, and what it means is that we apply science and discipline to our underwriting, not just art and you know running around trying to find deals. It's a very systematic approach, and so we look at all of that as well, and we triangulate every every deal with different valuation methods to you know, answer the question that your listeners very rightfully ask as well. So we talked about some of the key drivers, or you mentioned some of them, you know, the decreasing supply of farmland, the fact that you have an aging population. And I guess also, I guess, I guess you know, demographic shifts in general, where, where we all want maybe better quality of food, et cetera, et cetera. There's a couple of ones that I think is interesting that I wanted to hear your take on. Uh, one thing, of course, that we hear uh, a lot, I'm sure whether we're on one side or the other side of the of the Atlantic, that's something like climate change. I want to hear your thoughts about climate change. Another thing that just, and this may not be a U.S. thing, but only a European thing, but over here in Europe, uh, growing up, I was I remember watching on the news that farmers were always complaining about the prices and they wanted more subsidies. And in particular in France, they were very good at taking those challenges to the streets. I mean, they would just block the streets if they didn't get it their way. So I want to just touch on that a little bit about that. And then the final one I want to ask you about is 5G. Somewhere I picked up something that, mm -hmm. you know, with 5G, you might even know what it, that is. I can't remember now exactly, but that also had come an, an impact on, or could have an impact as a driver of of future demand for, for farmland. Yeah, absolutely. So great questions. Let me start from the first one, which uh, climate change. Really important. Our CEO is actually uh, has a major in atmospheric sciences from from Cornell. So he went into farming in a lot of ways as a way to battle climate change. So farming is a unique industry in that through what's called regenerative farming, which is just a sort of a more a little bit more sophisticated, more integrated approach to farming. This approach allows you to recapture carbon into the atmosphere. And in theory, agriculture can actually be carbon negative not just being carbon neutral, but carbon negative recapturing carbon. So going on on the attack with climate change. And because of one, because of our personal convictions and motivations and because of the expertise that we have and our CEO, we have really taken charge on the, well, on two things. One, on integrating climate change into our underwriting. So when we do our underwriting, when we do our analysis, we'll look at the climate change patterns and the already amazingly sophisticated but easy to use models that you can overlay to understand what does it mean for your farm in 10 20 years things like chill hours how many how many cold hours are there to grow almonds uh, what is the temperature going to be the precipitation and allows you to then say okay well this farm is actually not a good investment for the in because in 10 years things are going to change in 20 years even more so and we look at those horizons because us and our investors are long-term investors and it's important for us to make sure that the value of the asset not just stays but increases and so by that token we also look at areas where climate change will actually be positive for the farmland values and the more north you go in us and starting to go into canada the more you see that places like Michigan or Ontario are set to benefit from abundance of water, cheaper land, but increasing number in growing days, where I think something like every five years you get another growing day, which is a lot when you start looking at it. So we do look at that, and that is a probably one of the first things we'll look at when we decide which sectors to invest in. Uh, now, secondly, talking about, uh, I think, to expand your question a little bit, just the you know, the pricing, the political aspects of farming, how it plays out in the U.S. 
I would say, so first of all, there's a lot of segments in farming that don't have any or little political backing. Almonds, pistachios, walnuts. This is not corn and soybean farming. Uh, you, you take on way more risk and it's kind of up to you to make your destiny. The reason we have seen around the world this explosion of almond products is the work of the Almond Marketing Board, which is a body in California that uh, represents and markets and creates products around almonds. Um, what a lot of people don't know, but California produces 80% of the world's almonds. So it's, uh, uh, it's really an industry that has taken charge and you know, built their own destiny. So you have not just growing capabilities, but marketing and distribution capabilities in the U.S. farming industry. And that's why the U.S. farmland is so attractive. It's, it's not just the land, it's also the people who farm it. And then, of course, you have other sectors such as corn, soybean that does have more political backing. To that, uh, you know, the way to kind of think about it as a potential risk, you know, what if that goes away? Well, one is every single country has some sort of protection and political backing of its farming industry. It's vital to national security. Uh, it's vital to uh, your independence and to kind of ways of living. For example, Canada has a, uh, a fascinating quota system for uh, egg producers so that you get a license you can only produce so many eggs but you have a very stable pay so um, it's a good living and you know other places like us they will have subsidies mostly for insurance and for crop loss insurance for farmers for corn and soybean and yes the subsidies in theory could go away in practice it is such a bipartisan support both Democrats and Republicans, that it would be political suicide to touch it. When you look at there's a recent Financial Times survey that said that farmers were the most respected profession in the United States above, uh, you know, veterans, uh, military, firefighters, you name it. So wide social support as well. So I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And so within that, you know, we definitely uh, see that that sort of political support. But, you know, it's, I, I think... It's wrong to somehow take anything political or government and say, oh, we're not going to underwrite it, or that's a risk. We're only going to invest into pure market companies. Everything has government, especially for farming, for food. You get, I don't know, regulations on oil, and that will influence you. You get regulations on plastic bags or recycling of clothes, doesn't matter. You have to understand how politics and government works as well. And I think if anything, in farming, it's probably a constant that it will enjoy political support from U.S. government. Sure. So, so we definitely benefit from that as an industry. And I don't think that's going away ever, honestly. Yeah. And then I have this thing that I, I must have read it somewhere uh, about 5G. Do you know what I might be thinking of? Okay. Yeah. So the 5G is kind of next generation wireless connectivity. It improves uh, tremendously the how much data you can carry at what speed. Of course. Yeah. And the way it can really help with uh, farming, well, first of all, you know, farming is a rural economy, of course. So just con connectivity for farmers is really important for quality of life. So you're not disconnected. You can watch the same shows. You can play video games. You can chat on Zoom with your family. It's really important. And the current U.S. Department of Agriculture is investing heavily into this. And 5G is going to be part of that solution. But secondly, what this will do is that it will allow you to do remote farming, whether it's drones, sensors, irrigation, It'll allow you to do farming while sitting you know, from the comfort of your chair or maybe on a hammock in, in, in Dominican Republic and still farm. And that's going to be a total game changer where, well, first of all, it will bring more people into farming. It will improve the productivity of the farm, which will flow to the value of the farm, of the land, right? If your land is more productive, it's worth more. And will, it will allow for better portfolio management and oversight by a farm together as well, by you as an investor. In the future, we'd love it that would have cameras and drones on the farm so you could log in anytime. How far away are we from all this, Artem, uh, happening? We're actually here already, and uh, this is on our roadmap for 2021. So there's yeah. nothing preventing us from that. 5G just will make it even better, faster, cheaper. But a lot of it, I mean, we do drone flyovers. We're looking to put water and soil sensors. We're looking to put remote uh, irrigation systems. We use already satellite data to look at vegetation maps and multi-spectrum analysis. The self-driving cars will be a game changer. It'll just allow you maybe to 
go in your car, fall asleep, you know, wake up at 5 a.m., drive to the farm, two hours, wake up, do work, and then, you know, nap or chat on the way back. Total game changer. And, you know, talking about that as well, 5G, remote solar, self-driving cars will, I think, in general, increase the value of rural living. And especially with COVID, I think we're rediscovering mm. the kind of the nature and the, you know, the countryside. And I think that's going to increase tremendously the value of land now back in the rural areas. We might see a structural shift of the city's pricing kind of stabilizing or going down. Because it's, I mean, it's insane, right? London, uh, Berlin, uh, you know, Zurich, I'm sure it's, it's, it's really expensive to live. And if you can add more benefits to living uh, remotely, maybe in a smaller community, uh, you know, that those prices might go up by a lot. I completely agree. I mean, um, living in Switzerland and living in a small village, firstly, I would say that farming over here is very different from what you describe. Quite interestingly, but I completely agree. And, 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 and what's happening uh, this year is certainly changing a lot of things. I want to stay on one thing you mentioned very briefly, and I don't think we, we talked about it. We talked a little bit about the returns, but what about the risks? I mean, what what are the risks that you consider when you look at a new property or a new farm, both in terms of it could be, you know, geographic location, what kind of crop, or whatever. I mean, what are the things that you have to consider? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as anything in investing, formal investing doesn't come without risk. And there's certain risks that we focus on. We also, in every deal, will have uh, kind of in the bottom of the page, a risk section where we rank every deal with our risk reward rating, and we outline the eight main risks in in that farm. And you can read a white paper on our risks as well on farmtogether.com. But uh, uh, I'll kind of run through them. So just sure. going top top down, you know, we mentioned climate already. Uh, the second kind of macro factors we look at is the state of the end market for a particular produce item. So if it's in almonds, pistachios, walnuts, apples, what is going on in the market? Is there a demand going up? What's going on with supply? What is the pricing that we feel comfortable with long term? Uh, so we look at that. Then from, from that, we look at water, especially in places like California, water availability. We do tons of work on making sure that there's long-term availability of water. We then will due diligence the operator. Uh, especially for permanent crops, you typically need longer-term relationships, and we'll uh, look at the product, at the production history, at their reputation. That's really important. Then we will look at the, you know, farmland in a lot of ways is like real estate investing, where price is important, right? What price do you get it at? We look at the price we're paying, and we triangulate this price with comparables in the area. We look at the discounted cash flow model, take a look at what this land can produce looking at the yields. So we look at that. And then depending, this is more specifically to kind of the deal. Some deals will have debt on it, and our investors want us to put debt on because that is very attractive in terms of pricing and, uh, and uh, enhancing returns. Uh, but if a deal has debt or doesn't have debt, you know, with no debt, you have no bankruptcy risk with debt. However, remote, you do have some bankruptcy risk. So we highlight that, but we typically are fairly conservative with debt. We never will take on, you know, crazy private equity type sure. uh, financing, something very, very moderate, very reasonable. And then one thing that we always care for, which is more qualitative is, so our hold periods are typically eight to 10 years, although we're working, you know, chat about that, hopefully a liquid secondary market. So you can exit before that period, but we look at the exit as well. Uh, how do we sell this? To whom do we sell this when the deal comes to you. And to solve for that, we look only at areas that have vibrant farming ecosystems. Because what you don't want to have, you know, the biggest risk in farming is that there's great land and no one to farm it. That's probably like the biggest, biggest way in which you can lose money. It's, it's hard to lose money in, in farmland investing. When you look over long periods, it's really the index has done quite well. But one way to, to do that is to buy a stranded asset somewhere in, for example, middle of Kansas where just people are leaving and farming is dying there. So we, we look at, you know, I mentioned California and 80% of almonds. So when we buy an almond orchard in California, it'll be next to another 100 orchards in the immediate vicinity, which means that there's a liquid market for it. If you want to buy, if you want to sell, if you want to farm it, it's very clear, right? It's it's kind of like, you know, maybe bad example these days, but, you know, buying an apartment in, in New York City where there's 50,000 other apartments and you kind of really understand the value of that. So uh, I think that that one is really important. It's just making sure sure that you know risk is another way to say uncertainty in a way right mm -hmm. is sure. 
And with farmland, I think you have a lot of certainty, which is reflected in the volatility, where the certainty is stems from really knowing what your asset produces food. Uh, is there constant demand for it? There is. Uh, and the pricing and the productivity it has. So there's not that much variability in your uncertainty. And that makes sense. <laughs> and, and that, I think, leads to farmland being this safe, stable, attractive long-term asset is because you have that certainty of the like underlying nature. Sorry, I know I'm getting very philosophical. That's my no, academic nature. No, yeah. no, but it sounds to me, I mean, I, again, no expert here, right? But it almost sounds to me that if I was going to pinpoint one of the things you just mentioned as the biggest risk factor and the hardest one to get your head around, it's climate change. Or is, that's right. Is that, yeah. No, that's, that's exactly right. I think that's what, um, you know, especially when people ask us, what makes you different? What is your secret sauce? So part of that is that very data-driven. So we haven't touched on it at all, but actually we're, our value proposition is a tech-enabled farmland investment platform. There's a tremendous right. amount of tech and data we use to source, underwrite, analyze farmland at scale because it's a very fragmented market. And you're exactly right. Climate change is probably the biggest thing people are not thinking about. Uh, and so when, when we look at this, it's something like, does this farm have abundant water and two sources of water? And look, talking about water is a whole other hour-long podcast. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but uh, that's something that I think is is vitally important. And you can rest assured that the farms that we source for farm together go through that analysis of what does it mean in terms of climate change. Absolutely. So I want to shift gear a little bit with you and and talk a little bit more about how you are kind of you know, Farm Together actually makes the investment, so to speak. We've talked about what you focus on. That's great. And of course, I can't help thinking that in my world, where we're also completely data-driven, we always say that one of the things you shouldn't do, you should never fall in love with your own position, which I think might be a little bit difficult if you find a very picturesque uh, farm <laughs> on a beautiful piece of land. But I'm sure you have ways to, uh, yeah. to deal with that side of the emotions as well. But tell me a little bit about the process um, I mean, do you buy the farm before you sell it on or do you have to get the money from investors beforehand and how does it all work? Yeah, it's actually surprisingly not that complicated. Uh, farmland sales have 60, 90 days escrow, meaning that you have about 60 to 90 days to close after you deposit your escrow. And we, we deposit the escrow using our own capital. So we put our own capital at risk first sure. uh, and that escrow also becomes non-refundable after 45 days typically uh, and during that period that is actually plenty of time to do all the due diligence we need and then to syndicate deals out on our platform so we started doing our larger deals because our previous deals have sold out sometimes in, in days and, and minutes literally minutes so we started doing larger deals that take longer to close <laughs> sure. uh, people were just scooping them up uh and we have so far you know closed every single deal um, that we put on the platform look occasionally we might run into issues where we think it's an attractive deal the investors think otherwise and still being somewhat early we try to triangulate that and figure out what is attractive to our investors and we'll probably have a few a few blunders along the way. And if that okay. happens, all your capital will be returned to you in full. Uh, we, we hold it uh, and it doesn't go anywhere. So if we're not able to syndicate all the capital, we'll just return it. But so far, I mean, that's not been the case. And we don't expect that to be, maybe there'll be a handful of cases early on just because we're trying to really understand our investors. But overall, yeah, it's been very fast syndication for most of the deals. Yeah. You know, I'm also curious a little bit about kind of the, um, I mean, for, for the investors, so to speak. I mean, this is a new area for, for many people listening to us talking today. And so it can be very hard to know where to start, you know, who to trust, find maybe some third party type places to go and, and, and do their own research, so mm -hmm. to speak. What What do you typically say to people who just want to sort of get their feet wet, so to yeah. speak, and look into it? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. If you want to check out kind of third party uh, data, uh, the best one would be USDA. You can just download, uh, there's this 2017 census report that is 700 pages of data okay. on farmland. This is the government. Um, you can take a look at uh, NCREF. So uh, this would be N-C-R-E-I-F, Farmland Index. This is an independent farmland index 
um, so you can verify my claims there. You can take a look at Nuveen, N-U-V-E-E-N. It's a huge asset manager, one of the pioneers in the space. They've done a phenomenal job institutionalizing, popularizing the asset class. They pull out, put out a lot of good data. They're very reputable there. And look, I think the best way to always get your feet wet is to invest a little bit. And so yeah, no, I, uh, think, yeah. I would you know, put maybe minimum amount to one a couple of our deals. Uh, get quarterly uh, updates, learn a bit more about what's happening on the farms and go from there. Yeah, Sure. How do you source? I mean, so you obviously, before you can put the properties that you've identified on your platform, um, how do you source them? I mean, do you have like a, uh, and, and, and how do you decide on, on, on putting your own money up first? Do you do that by investment committee or how, how does that work on inside your your framework so um just a little bit background to the other members of the team sure uh, our investment director comes from prudential which is one of the oldest and largest investment funds in farmland in the united states at prudential he deployed over a quarter billion into farmland deals so he knows this space extremely well he's also very hands-on very practical and pragmatic so he brings tremendous expertise to the table he works with us on sourcing the permanent crops side and okay. then we work with an amazing asset manager who's done tremendously well in the last 10 years on the raw crop side so corn and soybeans so we rely on people that have many years of experience in the space uh, now the way we do kind of the sourcing and underwriting that it's um uh, you know, when, when I always say we're institutional investors, I come back to the point that that means you know, not fall in love with your position. So more broadly, it's a scientific discipline approach to investing where we go through, we have almost like a hundred step checklist that we go through everything from climate water to this particular deal operator, all those things. And we, we go through, I mean, it, it literally sometimes is like a hundred deals a week and only maybe one, two makes it. To the platform it's thousands that we have gone through so far the the ones that we look through uh, and kind of how we decide it just needs to meet all our criteria for underwriting so high quality farmland good price good water right produce item right operator right price it, it's a you know it's a comprehensive checklist and we we describe all that kind of the attractiveness of the deal uh on the webinars when we present the deals there's a lot of information you can read as well and it kind of shows you our thinking why this deal and then that's when we kind of to your point about investment committee yes we have a, a three-person um, investment committee myself the investment director now ceo and then on uh some deals uh, depending on kind of when we need to bring in outside expertise, which we often do, we work with really experienced like farm managers, farmers, some some of them have, you know, farm for generations to further sort of fine tune the thesis. So it's a fairly comprehensive process that at the same time, you know, is getting faster and faster because we have built tech to streamline and empower ourselves so that we don't need to do things that don't require human brain, such as taking a listing and typing it into Excel table because it's all very non-automated. You're not looking at Bloomberg. You don't right. get, you know, like fancy uh, PPM. Sometimes it can be like literally a phone call from a pharmacy and like, hey, I'm selling my property nearby. Here's some data. And then you have to find everything yourself, do your satellite imaging, local county records, things like that. And so instead of spending your precious time doing collect information, we have the tech to do it so that you can focus on being on the art of investing. You know, I keep saying science, there's of course an art as well. <laughs> and doing what only humans can do. We've been talking about this now for a while. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there thinking, well, you know, when I hear about buying farmland and property, you know, I have to have a million dollars to do so. So I'm curious to find out a little bit about the the platform and you know how low is essentially is the investment offerings that you do, but also in terms of what people actually end up owning. Um, I would love to know what that is, and also if they if they have any say the uh, like you know voting rights or whatever in terms of when to sell or liquidate. I know you said you were talking about coming up with a second dairy market. That obviously makes 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 a lot of sense, but talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said a million dollars. That's probably on the lower side, and we'll get you one farm. Right. That's why you know you've seen also another asset, another type of investor emerging. It's the the billionaires, where sort of a 
well-known secret in the space is the largest or one of the largest farmland owners in the United States is the Bill Gates Foundation. And mm. and they love it for their they goals, but there's also other wealthy people buying farmland, investing into it because uh, it's a great long-term investment. But you do need at least you know a few million dollars. And that's for one farm. And if you want to build a diversified portfolio of farms, well, suddenly you're talking 10, 15, 20 million dollars. And now, even if you have like a few hundred million, well, do you want to put 20% of your investment portfolio in farmland, <laughs> 30%? So even for the wealthy-ish people, it's hard. With farm together, you can invest with as little as fifteen thousand dollars in, oh, in wow. one farm, and it keeps getting lower and lower. And one day, we'd like to make it that you know, five five bucks you could invest sure. in a diversified sure. portfolio of farmland. To answer your question of how does it look legally, like what are you actually getting? We wanted to give our investors as direct of ownership in farmland as possible. So we have created what, what is called kind of bankruptcy remote vehicles. So here's what it means. Every farm is bought always 100% of the farm. So we always buy 100% of the farm and we buy the title, the ownership document of the farm. The farm is put into a single property Delaware LLC, so a legal entity in Delaware, which is kind of the most common state in the United States that's the best corporate rights, like very, very sort of plain vanilla. That LLC has a management agreement with Farm Together. So we provide the management, and by management, I mean finding the operator, overseeing them, distributing cash. The administration, meaning your tax documents, and by the way, this is completely open to all international investors. It's not that complicated. The taxes are not that much of an issue. Just really, we have tons of people, investors from Europe, from from Asia, from Africa. It's completely easy to do. So yeah. I just don't want people to be scared of that. No, exactly. Uh, that was yeah. one of my questions, but you've already answered that. And we, yeah, we're happy to, to work <laughs> with uh, with anyone with a tax council on, on, on that. Sure. And then what you do is you buy a unit or a share and ownership percentage in that Delaware LLC. And you, then you receive payouts uh, every year or sometimes every quarter, semi-annually, depending on the deal. The administration is also done by a third party called Assure. It's a well-known uh, administrator in the United States. They have over 5,000 actually entities that they service. So this is you know, very standard for them. They provide tax documents. They actually will do the payouts uh, when need be. They are kind of the ones that do you know, that administrative legal work. And so between them, the operator on being on a long-term contract, even if we all get hit by a bus or something, your property will still operate according to the contract, according to the, the investment memorandum. The payout, the operation will all continue. And the, you know, hopefully none of us get hit by a bus, but you know, if something happens, farm together is no more, right? You, you should you know, consider that option as well. And we're always very open to talk about it. I mean, likely what's going to happen is that at least, well, we all want and will stay in farming, investing for many years. So uh, the management fees likely will go to some sort of third-party uh, administrator or one of us or the operator in our case to just continue making sure that all your farms perform as needed as uh, you know we could give it to other funds to other players so you know all that is kind of all that all that hustle and <laughs> overkills sometimes people think but it's not an overkill it's really just to give you an investor complete confidence that you own the land you right. have that land ownership and it's not tied to like how Farm Together does to other deals. And so I think that that gives just a lot of confidence. And have you structured your own since you're fulfilling that role, like uh, in a sense managers do in, 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 in the hedge fund world? How do you price yourself? Do you price yourself as a hedge fund would do? We not we're not we're not hedge fund greedy like 220 so whatever it is right now <laughs> it's actually a very simple fee model because we also have a lot of different investors and we just want to give something that is clear to everyone we charge right now two simple fees there's a one-time administrative expense reimbursement fee at close that is typically between one to two percent of your invested capital uh, so of the deal size which sometimes sure. includes that uh, and then we charge an annual fee of about one to one and a half percent of the total deal size so equity plus debt uh, and that's it. So we don't charge like performance fees or capital gain fees. We plan to start doing that because we want to show sure. investors that we are aligned uh, in yeah. in the fee structure. But also, you know, talking about alignment, we uh, we personally invest in every deal as well as principals. Sure. Um, yeah. And you know, the especially the early deals, you know, we're going to be judged by the investment performance. So right now, we really focus not on trying to like maximize the fees. We're in this for the long run. 
we really sure. want to uh, show the returns. Did, did I hear you say earlier on that you might at some point consider also opening kind of a fund where people kind of put in $20,000, but they get exposure to a number of different farms, so it's not just one property, or is that was that something I heard in uh, my own mind? No, it's uh, that's that's right. It's uh, Some investors, they don't want to be sitting on the website, investing and reading every deal. They go, look, I trust you guys. I want a diversified portfolio. And so we plan right. to roll out pooled vehicles, diversified portfolios, other structures that allow someone to kind of invest and forget and just get that diversified portfolio according to the maybe criteria. So some might say, I don't want anything in California or I don't want anything in Illinois or I don't want this type of farm. Uh, and then we'll just deploy the capital, you know, automatically to every deal. Yeah, sure. that's that's something that we're very excited to do. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you ask me personally how I well, am building and if I was an outsider, build my portfolio, I would say, yeah, I want, you know, 10, 15 farms, make them diversified across geographies and crops. Uh, and just here's you know 100 200,000 and please go and invest <laughs> and don't bother me okay. with every farm yeah <laughs> yeah exactly exactly i've got one more question and then i've got some kind of what i call personal and fun questions just to round it off uh, if you don't mind so the final kind of more normal question is so where do you with this kind of new way of of access or giving access to investors where do you see the demand coming from you know geographically types of investors sort of right now at least yeah honestly the investors are coming from everywhere and okay. it's all types of investors we have farmers yeah. we have people from the ag community we have tech people finance people ceos lawyers dentists mckinsey consultants <laughs> um, any podcasters out podcasters there? <laughs> i think yeah we got some <laughs> podcasters family offices wealth managers i think it really i mean i'm so uh, grateful to see that because that was my belief all along is that this is an asset class that belongs in everyone's portfolios. I think same as real estate, same as you know stocks, bonds. It just if you're building a diversified portfolio, you should have a little bit of farmland. I mean, it just makes sense, uh, yeah. and we're seeing that right now with with our investment base. Sure. No, it really does sound like that. Now, then I want to move on to the final section, which I, as I said, call personal or fun. So uh, I hope you don't mind. First thing is just, what was the first farm you ever invested in and, and at what age did you kind of get into this yourself? Oh man, let me think. Um, so this was 2013. So we invested in, in agriculture and food companies and territory teachers, but we're just, I think they were just looking to look at farmland. Uh, just show you how, in a way, new the space is, where even the right. you know, innovative teachers only got into it a few years ago. But this was 2013. And we're actually looking, uh, so we already were invested in it, but uh, I was analyzing and then providing portfolio oversight of farms in Uruguay, out of all places, oh. yeah, and, yeah. and Canada. <laughs> uh, so really it was a mixture of grains and cattle in Canada and sort of this innovative approach of also building a brand around the beef, which they've they've done kind of somewhat successfully. I mean, there's more to it, but... It's really in, in Canada, even though know, it's farmland investing is taken off massively. But yeah, that mm. was that was fun. <laughs> okay. Now, both as an entrepreneur, but maybe also as a PM, uh, so to speak, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Any risks that you worry about, so to speak? I mean, I think it's more so more about just building the business and the team because, uh, you know, I want to make sure that our people are engaged, motivated. Uh, always developing, always stretching themselves. So I spend a lot of time these days more on the kind of talent development. From investment perspective, I mean, always analyze and monitor it. But I think that what I like about farmland is that there's not that much that like keeps you up at night. If you bought a farm at a good price, uh, you got, you know, all the right things in place, kind of not, not much that really can happen there. And, you know, the farms, that's the thing as well. If you buy in, let's say, from maybe very conservative perspective a cornfield in illinois uh, the farmer pays you rent up front for the year and you have then zero exposure to the harvest to what happens you got your payment the next year you rent it out all over again so unless someone shows up and like you know dumps nuclear waste on your farm right it's it's like there's not much to worry about there um and we have great partners as well and great farmers that have been doing this for decades so nothing there 
I mean, th this volatility in, in, let's say, almond prices right now that we had like a record harvest and the prices have gone down, but also yields are probably going to be higher than right. expected. I think that does worry me a little bit more so just uh, making sure that our investors are diversified, they understand the risks when they invest, and that they understand that there's going to be volatility. Some years might be better than projected, some worse, but it's all you know, in our expectation underwriting will even out. So I would say that's a little bit. I mean, COVID obviously been a concern. Uh, actually, farms have sure. done really well, but just making sure that farmers work with the operators, that yeah. they treat their workers with care. And so far, we had zero issues. All the farms have been operated as expected. Your farms are kind of naturally remote. Uh, you don't hold hands. You know, you don't sit in the office as you do farming. <laughs> so it's kind sure. of been fairly, fairly safe and thankfully thank god because we're not anywhere close to being done with the pandemic um, but sure. there's been no no issues with with our team or with the farmers we work with so um yeah knock on wood everything's been good just the regular kind of staying up at night things of nothing course. crazy yeah, absolutely. Um, no no that's what i like about farmers it's just it's a safe and stable asset class right yeah sounds like it also, one question I'd like to ask you is, um, you know, potential investors, mm -hmm. what, are the qu what are the key questions they should be asking, do you think? I would say it would be just making sure that they read through the materials and understand what they're buying, understand the risks, the, the hold periods, but also understand the benefits. I think making sure, looking uh, sort of as they're deciding overall is, uh, making sure that initially you kind of you know try before you buy. So maybe it's a few small investments. They get to know sure. our team, listen to our pod, uh, our podcast, listen to our webinars. Webinar, yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, on the deals. Just as I would say, you know, just as in any investing, you know, take the time to understand the team, understand the market, understand the risks, which was great. All the questions we went through, loved that. Before you invest, and just making sure that you're comfortable with that, because you know, I'm I'm an investor in my heart. I I wanted to build this, but uh, I, I don't really like kind of selling. I like explaining, yeah, sure. educating, yeah. and then letting people make sure. their own decisions. Uh, and I hope we've done a lot of that on the website. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, and then finally, I wanted to um, ask you to, fi to finish a statement for me, if you could. That's going to be the last one. And, and the statement that I'd love you for you to finish is, I know I'm being successful when... I know I'm being successful when, yeah, maybe a little bit more ambitious, but for me, it's I know I'm being successful when farmland becomes a staple in everyone's portfolios. Perfect answer. Now, we've come to the end of my long list of questions, but of course, I want to make sure you feel we've covered all the important points. Um, so let me just ask you if you think there's anything um, I've missed uh, today in our conversation, anything you... I'm going to ask you later about where people can go, but just generally, is there anything I've not covered? I think we we covered almost everything. This was a very thorough conversation, so thank you, Nils. Good. You're, you're very welcome. Adam, it's really been fascinating. It's a fascinating journey that you've had into the world of farmland. Uh, of course, before we finish, do please tell the audience where they can learn more about Farm Together and the investment opportunities that you offer. And um, I think we've all also talked about already uh, other places they can go. So maybe you just want to provide uh, them with your details, so to speak. Absolutely. So our website is farmtogether.com. You can also reach out to me personally at artem at farmtogether.com. So I'll just spell it. A is in Apple, R is in Romeo, T is in Tango, E is in Echo, M is in Michael at farmtogether.com. Uh, info at farmtogether.com for kind of more general questions. We uh, we reply to all emails, uh, all phone calls. Uh, we love talking to our investors as well as just people interested in the space. We're always looking for collaborators, people that maybe want to do research, that want to do internships with us, that are looking for jobs that would like to maybe write with us, that would like to help us source deals or explore new venues. It's just such a new, fascinating space. And you don't have to have farming background having grow, grown up on the farm if you're interested in this space there's so much going on regenerative agriculture organic agriculture sustainability agriculture technology uh, new types of produce coming to the market new types of grains ancient grains uh, all kinds of things so uh, please reach out we you know we just want to participate in the conversation and help you uh, on your sort of journey whatever it is as well sure and that's excellent it's very clear that you are 
uh, very passionate about this. So that's uh, that's fantastic. And on that note, we're going to wrap up this uh, great conversation today. Artem, thanks so much for being on the podcast and sharing your thoughts and experiences with me. It's been, as I said, a really um, open sort of open my mind uh, about this as an investment opportunity and and to hear your story. And as I often say, it's so important to have practitioners like you share these ideas because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And to all of you listening today, I hope that you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want to Uh, bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in the world of finance and investing. From me, Niels Karstolarsen, thanks for listening and I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of toptradersunplugged.com and in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources that you can find on the website. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.